Welcome to another American Bankruptcy Institute podcast. I'm Sam Giordano, ABI Executive Director. Today's guest has written an important and award-winning book exploring the origins, growth, and regulation of small-dollar lending institutions in the United States over the 20th century. The book is titled City of Debtors, A Century of Fringe Finance. Published by Harvard University Press, it won the Ralph Gomery Book Prize from the Business History Conference and was selected as the Best Book Award from the American College of Consumer Financial Services Lawyers. It was also singled out for praise at the recent National Conference of Judges annual meeting in Washington. Its author is Anne Fleming, and she is with us today. So welcome, Anne, and thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. Professor Fleming teaches uh, at the Georgetown University Law Center. Her research interests, not surprisingly, include contracting commercial law, commercial finance, and American legal history with a focus on the relationship between law and poverty, prominent themes in City of Debtors. Her other writing examines the history of truth and lending laws, the intersection of legal history and economic history, and the role of the doctrine of unconscionability in protecting low-income consumers. She's at work now on a project exploring the development of the American consumer bankruptcy system and the origins of Chapter 13. Professor Fleming received her law degree, magna cum laude, from Harvard Law School, where she served as a board member of the Harvard Legal Aid Bureau. After law school, she clerked for the Honorable Miriam Cedarbaum, the U.S. District Court for the Southern District of New York, and the Honorable uh, Marjorie Rendell, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Third Circuit. She also practices as a staff attorney for South Brooklyn Legal Services, representing low-income homeowners facing foreclosure. Before joining the Georgetown faculty, she taught at Harvard and as a fellow and lecturer on, in law. She also holds a Ph.D. in history from the University of Pennsylvania. So first, Anne, congratulations on the book, which we hope to review in an upcoming ABI journal suggested reading column because I think it's a book that deserves a, a wide audience. And second, as anyone who has driven through an inner city or smaller community underserved by banks has at least observed the presence of fringe finance, payday loan shops, car title lenders, rent-to-own storefronts, uh, even if both of us have never actually engaged these players, but you have, and you have studied them thoroughly. So what is the major takeaway from the findings in your book? Uh, Well, I think the first finding of the book is pretty basic, which is uh, that a lot of the issues that we're dealing with today uh, concerning how what I refer to as fringe finance, which I uh, defined to include both cash loans and the sale of goods on credit. Um, the problems that we're now facing about how to regulate that industry uh, are not new problems. Um, so these issues go back to the birth of these industries, um, which I date to the late 19th and early 20th century. Um, so going back for over 100 years, this, these types of financial products have been controversial. Um, they have provoked outrage uh, and a demand for them to be better regulated. Um, 
but we still haven't quite figured out how to regulate them. Um, there's still debate and, and kind of puzzlement over what is the, the proper way um, to oversee this industry. So, so that's the kind of most basic finding, that there's a lot of history here um, that we sometimes lose sight of when we're so focused on the present um, problem. Um, and then the second finding is, is about why we haven't figured out the answer. And I identify three problems um, that I think have made regulation or figuring out the right regulatory regime particularly difficult for this specific industry. Um, so one problem is just the, the uh, source of regulation. So for most of the period I study, the 20th century, uh, the states have been the primary regulators of small-dollar loans um, and sales of, of household goods on credit. Um, and as a result, you have different regimes of regulation in each state, uh, and that presents opportunities for lenders to evade regulation by moving across state boundaries. Um, so federalism is one issue. Another issue I identify is a categorization problem. We have struggled to decide whether small loans should be regulated just like other loans or whether they really belong in their own regulatory category. Um, and then finally, I think this is a particularly tricky area because uh, the users of these products are often low-income households. And so there are concerns related to the products about poverty, how we sort of lift people out of poverty, uh, and whether loans are a way uh, to stabilize households, give them financial security, or whether loans are actually causing people to sort of sink deeper into debt and exacerbate their financial problems. Right. I was really um, struck by the historical um, uh, features um, of the of the industry that you that you write about. You have this one passage from a Chicago Tribune article in 1908 that could have been written in 2008 or 18. Um, so, uh, in, in terms of the um, uh, so-called insidious, far-reaching, disastrous effects of the moneylender uh, or loan shark, um, uh, as the Chicago Tribune uh, reported at the time. So, Mike, so the question is, what do you think of the uh, of this area of lending? How is it proven to be durable, even in the face of, you know, more than 100 years of sometimes severe critique? Does that illustrate that there's a continuing need for this uh, type of uh, financial product? I think yes. Um, and the fact that the demand for these types of loans has existed for so long suggests that um, the industry is unlikely to, to go away absent some more dramatic changes in our political economy. Um, so the Tribune quote that, that you mentioned, right, in 1908, the reporter says, loan sharking is terrible. Uh, it's one of the great evils of modern right. society. But then a few years later, someone else in the Tribune says, it's easy to condemn loan sharking, but the problem is people need money. Right. Um, and so I think that that's exactly where we are today. Um, most people, I think, would agree that it would be better if people didn't need to borrow a few hundred bucks or didn't need to um, to buy goods on credit or to um, go to rent-to-own stores. Uh, but the fact that people use these services, continue to use these services, suggests to me that there's a real demand there. And the question is, 
what should the the market look like? Are there ways to regulate the supply without drying up access to to credit? Okay. Well, let's talk a little bit about those possible uh, regulatory regimes because that really is the focus of the of the book, and it is so thorough in its documentation um, <laughs> um, of uh, of the sort of the issue. And um, I didn't know, for example, that there, there was something called the Uniform Small Loan Act of 1923. And it's very, very interesting, very interesting stuff. So you mentioned the uh, the state. Uh, regime and um, uh, and the the difficulty of of the hodgepodge of of, uh, of state laws making it difficult to um, serve as an effective uh, regulator. Is there does this um, argue for a kind of uh, uniform law treatment uh, at at a federal level? Uh, so I think that there are kind of two two potential paths forward um, if the concern is that we have this patchwork of, of different state laws. Um, so one path forward would be to kind of reinvent the uniform small loan law. Um, mm-hmm. So as you mentioned, the, the uniform law was devised um, around World War One, around that time period, um, and it was put together by a coalition of um, lenders who had formed a trade association uh, and and had decided that they wanted to make a push for legislation um, that would allow their industry to operate openly. Um, a coalition of lenders and the Russell Sage Foundation, which had uh, a division that focused specifically on, on small loans um, and their regulation. So that project, in my view, was very successful. Uh, it, it was a uniform law not created through the more typical um, uniform law commission project. Mm-hmm. It was created by these other groups. Um, but, but otherwise, it was very similar to the types of uniform legislation that we're familiar with today. Right. Uh, and it, it was adopted on a state-by-state basis. Um, not every state adopted it, but uh, a large number of states, particularly that had a lot of industrial workers, adopted it, um, and so we could do something like that today. Um, the the downside is just that it requires a lot of work, right? Rather than just having Congress or a federal agency put forward a rule that would apply nationwide, you have to go state by state to all 50 states to put these rules in place. Um, and so if you don't have every state adopt the rules, um, there's the potential for the state that has uh, unregulated lending or less regulated sure. lending for lenders to move there and you know operate across the country mm-hmm. from that location. Um, the alternative would be uh, federal legislation. Right. Um, so, you know, Congress could sort of set minimum standards that would apply across the country. Um, it wouldn't, uh, unless Congress exercised broad preemption of state laws, that wouldn't, I think, totally get rid of the patchwork problem. Um, if federal law set a floor, you know, states could could issue protections above that floor, um, which would, would create some variation. But in my view, that would at least provide a minimum floor of protections uh, that would apply nationwide, and you, you would not have any outlier state um, that allowed essentially unregulated or very um, lax regulation of lending. Is that what um, at least some hope the CFPB role might, might, might have been, at least when it was created, to create that kind of floor? That was my... Um, 
my view of what the CFPB 2017 um, mm-hmm. payday lending rule would have done. Um, and as, as you know, you know, the agency has indicated that they are reconsidering that rule. Right. I think it's unlikely that at least in its uh, form. original form, <laughs> it's going to go into effect. But, but to me, what was very attractive about that rule and the, the more sort of general approach was that um, it would have set this floor uh, mm-hmm. and that, you know, borrowers across the country would be assured of, of at least some minimum protections. And then states that wanted to go farther could go farther uh, in terms of um, regulating, but but that you wouldn't have quite the same range between states that we have today. I mean, for, uh, for small dollar uh, loans that we're talking about here, it does seem to be a big business. Um, yes. So do you, can you talk, speak to the scope of this? And, and perhaps it speaks to why it's so difficult to come up with a federal solution? Um, yes. Yeah, so I think, you know, one of the big differences, I, I said a few moments ago that in some ways um, not a lot has changed, right? We're still struggling with these questions. But I think a, a major difference between our present moment uh, and the early 20th century is the size um, and also sophistication of the industry um, in terms of uh, p- politics. So in the early 20th century, because so many states had uh, strict interest rate caps, the industry was small. It was kind of operating in the shadows. Uh, they weren't, you know, for example, making stock offerings and, and trying to raise capital um, uh, in any kind of public way. Um, that is very different today. So the industry, um, which includes not only payday lenders, but um, title lenders, uh, you could also include traditional installment lenders. Um, so depending on, on how we count, uh, it's you know billions of dollars, um, thousands of, of storefront lenders plus online lenders. Uh, and so the, the scope of it is just... Um, significantly larger than than it was in the earlier period. And as a result, um, the industry also has, I think, more resources uh, to spend on on trying to kind of protect their interests um, politically. For sure. Um, Most of our um, listeners and ABI members are familiar with a a lot of the arguments uh, that are um, in opposition to this sort of fringe lending. Um, but I'd ask you to sort of fact check this particular statement from, uh, from an industry source. Uh, and it goes, payday lending services extend small amounts of uncollateralized credit to high-risk borrowers and provide loans to poor households when other financial institutions will not. This democratization of credit has made small loans available to mass sectors of the population, and particularly the poor, that would not have had access to credit of any kind in the past. True or false, or mostly true or mostly false? (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I think uh, mostly true uh, that, you know, Generally, folks who go to payday lenders um, have significantly limited options in terms of um, their ability to to borrow, um, and that's why they're there in the first place. Um, but I don't think that that means that the industry 
should not be subject to some oversight and regulation. Um, so I think what that the, – the quote is, is uh, correct that, that the industry has um, allowed people to have access to credit who might not otherwise have access to it under our current regime of regulation. Um, but I don't think that, that it then follows that any form of regulation is going to um, reduce access or significantly reduce access to, to credit. Um, so I think that there is some value in access, but access to credit, if the credit is offered on terms that make it likely the borrower is going to default or be unable to repay the loan um, or is going to have significant difficulty in, in repaying the loan and getting out of debt, access to credit on those terms is not necessarily beneficial for households. Right, for sure. So frequently in this uh, debate over the years and certainly with uh, with regard to the recent uh, consideration by the CFPB on the rulemaking um, process, uh, you read a lot about the just eye-popping um, APR rates of interest for these small-dollar loans. And the argument, of course, from, uh, from the industry is that uh, these fees can't be compared to uh, traditional lending options, but rather to the kind of uh, overdraft, late payment, or penalty fees that uh, customers incur every day when they, when, they, um, when they miss a payment. So like a payday advance is, is, um, uh, is like a, you know, an NSF fee that a merchant mm-hmm. would charge for a bounced check and, um, uh, or an overdraft of a credit card balance or late uh, charged even on a utility bill. So, is that are those arguments still valid? Is that a valid um, comparison of the kind of market that we're talking about? Um, so, I think that there is a difference in terms of. Um, the cost between small loans and larger loans, and and by cost I mean sort of cost expressed in terms of the total amount borrowed. Um, so I think small loans, assuming they're being offered by a, a for-profit entity um, that, that is trying to recoup its cost and make some money on top of that, uh, if a small loan is being offered by a for-profit entity, they are going to have to charge a higher APR than would be charged on a larger loan. Uh, and that's just because the cost of origination, the cost of servicing, um, those costs uh, are not significantly less, even if the right. amount of the loan is less than um, than you know borrowing thousands and thousands of dollars. Um, so there is something uh, about small dollar loans that means that they are going to be more expensive. And I think the question is, how much more expensive should they be? Um, is it uh, appropriate to allow a lender to charge 400% APR? Um, the other, I think, aspect of or or thing about these products um, that is concerning to me is not just the cost um, expressed as an APR, but also the structure of the loan. Um, so a lot of the public debate focuses on the APR, but I think what makes the loans um, 
potentially uh, troublesome for consumers is that, at least for payday loans, the structure is generally uh, that you make a lump sum repayment, and that lump sum is due within a few weeks of having um, taken out the money. Uh, And for many people who are using these products, um, that structure means that they get uh, borrow, they end up in sort of a cycle of borrowing where they're paying off the fee for the original loan, but they're just rolling over the principal. Um, and so to me, the, that is a difference between, for example, the um, overdraft fee and the fees that are charged by these lenders, um, that it's much easier with a with a payday loan to sort of get trapped in, in this cycle of just paying off the fee and not making a dent in, in the principal because they're not structured to be amortizing. Uh, there's not sort of a step down over time. It's just this lump sum, which can be tricky for someone that has limited resources uh, and low, who's low income to be able to make that payment and, and fully pay off the debt. Um, what about some uh, options here? Um, again, your book points out a, 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 an idea that I um, uh, read about recently, even from uh, people in Congress currently, about postal banking, which you point out isn't a new idea at all. Um, but can you speak to that, about the idea of offering basic banking services through postal systems? I mean, every neighborhood's got a post office. Um, is that a way to perhaps uh, rechannel the, this uh, small dollar lending into a, a more government-regulated uh, or controlled environment, which um, might serve both interests of protecting you know, consumers from being ripped off at, at the same time uh, serving communities that are unbanked. Yes. Um, so, so I think one um, set of proposals that has has emerged from these discussions about um, what is the the appropriate way to regulate um, is to acknowledge the demand. Right? right. There are people that need access to to small dollar loans, and so a lesson from the early 20th century is if if you try to just regulate suppliers out of existence, that's probably not going to be effective. They're going to find a way to to to, to meet that demand because um, there's there's money to be made from from serving uh, that population of people that want small dollar loans. Um, so I support the idea of some sort of public option, um, and that could take the form of a postal bank um, to have the United States Postal Service, mm-hmm. uh, in addition to their you know sort of core. Um, uh, operations to also offer basic banking services. Um, but uh, postal lending is new, right? So post- there is a history of postal banking. Mm-hmm. Um, but when we had a postal bank uh, earlier in the 20th century, the postal bank really just accepted deposits. They were not acting as a lender at all. So I think uh, even though the proponents of postal banking are drawing on this history, mm-hmm. What what they are proposing <laughs> is in the <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I I think you know the 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 fact that the post office has offered banking services, right? That that is useful to to make the case for um, a postal bank. But but I think that there are uh, challenges involved in making loans that that do not exist for just holding deposits. Um, and so that's why I think um, this idea 
is is interesting. I think it's exciting. It has a lot of potential, mm-hmm. but that we really need to to get into the details of it. Um, and so, for example, you know, there are some proposals about how to do this. But the proposals um, have different estimates of what the charges would be. And so the attractiveness of postal banking may depend on the terms on which loans are offered. I mean, I think regardless of the specific form, uh, anyone that's that's supporting postal banking would be urging um, the the post office to be making these loans on um, better terms, less expensive than are currently being offered by the private market. But the specifics of how much they would charge, how large the loans could be, um, how do you go about collecting the debt if it's not repaid, <laughs> what should the underwriting requirements right. be, right. right? All of those details, I think, are important. Um, and I think it would be wonderful if we could have a conversation about that. I think that would kind of advance the ball on um, thinking about what this might actually look like. But I like the idea of there being a public option for small dollar loans. Um, and there is precedent for a sort of philanthropic model of lending. Um, it didn't uh, spread as, as widely as it could have, but in the early 20th century, one of the things that the anti-loan sharking campaign did was to try to foster alternatives. And so I think postal banking is very much aligned with that idea that one way to um, try to regulate or give some oversight on the industry is um, direct regulation, but an alternative is to foster competition. And fostering competition can include by enabling uh, not-for-profit or philanthropic entities to offer these loans um, on on terms that a for-profit entity would not make them. Of course, um, when the government is involved, there's a chance, slight chance, I suppose, that the government will be inefficient or won't be the won't be a good lender or will lose money or won't be able to. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, sarcasm yeah, and, alert. You know, yeah. and I, I think part of the conversation about postal banking um, should include uh, whether loans are really the right way to, to go about um, supporting households that are currently using payday loans and other high-cost forms of credit, right? So one way to address that need is is to just provide cheaper loans. The other way to address that need is to just give people money. Um, and uh, that could be, you know, in the form of the earned income tax credit or uh, could take other forms. But I think we also should think about uh, whether it makes sense to, to set up this apparatus um, within the post office if the real problem is just people don't have enough money to meet their basic needs. And if that's the real problem, then maybe it is more efficient to just give them money rather than um, structure it as, as a loan. Uh, and I think that should be also something that, that we consider before setting up a postal bank. Oh, for sure. Well, uh, I think uh, you'd agree one thing is absolutely uh, agreed upon, and that is the search for a way to govern small sum lending has uh, been elusive, um, um, but is uh, but still could benefit from more thoughtful study, and and I think that's what uh, uh, your book is all about. So uh, uh, that's all the time we have for today, but we look forward to uh, uh, more conversation about uh, this uh, subject and this important book, City of Debtors. So thank you. thanks, Anne Fleming. 
Thank you very much for having me. It was a pleasure. And we thank our audience, as always. There are more than 230 ABI podcasts with practitioners, judges, and scholars at our website, abi.org newsroom. Just click on the podcast uh, to listen on demand. Uh, you can also subscribe to the monthly series via Apple Podcasts. Until next time, then, this is Sam Giordano saying good day from the American Bankruptcy Institute. 